Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Episode 26, Membership Motion. In the middle of the night on November 11, 1918, residents throughout Seattle heard a whistle blow and knew what it meant. The fighting was over. The next morning, Seattle celebrated. By a sort of spontaneous combustion of Seattle's heart and soul, the Seattle Times reported, Parades of joyous, shouting, happy workers let the world know that peace has come. There never was anything like it in Seattle before, today's celebration of the end of the World War. By 10 o'clock this morning, the city was delirious with joy, and Second Avenue was a howling, shrieking bedlam of men and women, boys and girls, walking and riding, or just standing still and cheering. The greatest demonstration in the city's history began at 8 o'clock, and in two hours, a monster, impromptu parade developed on Second Avenue, it had no head nor tail, and for once there was no grand marshal to announce the details. It was democracy in full tilt. From one end of 2nd Avenue to the other, auto trucks, private cars, delivery wagons, laundry wagons, even garbage wagons, sounding sirens, and girls ringing bells, blowing horns, and trailing anything that would add to the noise. Perfect sunshiny weather made possible a celebration of maximum enthusiasm and display. The governor of Washington proclaimed the day a legal holiday, but as this news article put it, Seattle beat him to it. As a spectacular climax for Seattle's unforgettable day of rejoicing over the peace declaration, the Seattle Times hosted a big fireworks display to mark the end of the biggest of all wars. There was a prevalent sentiment that the end of this war meant the end of all wars. It would still be many months before all the troops would come home. The peace treaties still needed to be negotiated, and a new League of Nations would be established to promote permanent peace. Over the next several months, life in America slowly returned to normal. For the Christian science community, operations also returned to normal. But as a result of their wartime activities, Christian science had advanced and spread through their outreach efforts. By the end of the war, the Christian Science War Relief and Camp Welfare Network of Workers and Volunteers had distributed 40,000 copies of a pocket-sized edition of Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures to people in the military. And so, Mary Baker Eddy's book was read in bunks and hospital beds and freight cars, as well as in forests and trenches at the front. War relief workers placed standard editions of the Christian Science textbook in portable libraries shipped overseas by the American Library Association. 
They gave away Bibles, hymn books, pamphlets, Christian Science magazines, and six million copies of the Christian Science Monitor. Christian scientists had collaborated with the Red Cross, they engaged with chaplains from other religions, developed relationships with military officers, gained access to hospitals, naval ships, and lighthouses. They supported other welfare organizations providing war relief. As the committee report later published in Christian Science Wartime Activities concluded, Christian scientists have sometimes been charged with being self-centered and lacking an interest in that which concerns the general welfare. While they themselves knew the falsity of such statements, it is, nevertheless, cause for gratitude that such misconceptions have been largely corrected in public thought by the wartime activities of our movement. The committee reported other benefits for the Christian science movement. The churches most involved had increased attendance at church services and lectures. There were more testimonies at Wednesday evening meetings and more activity at reading rooms. Church collections received more generous financial contributions. The war relief work required more active communications between local branch churches, which resulted in a greater spirit of unity and cooperation. The Christian Science Building at Camp Lewis would continue to operate for many years. Other Christian Science war relief organizations were closing down or being transformed. In Port Townsend, the Christian Science War Relief Rooms were converted to a Christian Science Reading Room in a new location in a former saloon. A new church was being formed to support it. The war relief worker who stayed an extra few months to help organize the new church and serve at the new reading room wrote, It has occurred to me that the war relief work was the bud and the new church the flower. In Seattle, the flower of a new church edifice was beginning to bud in the university district. At the start of 1918, while Orison O.J.C. Dutton was overseeing the Christian Science Soldiers and Sailors Hospitality Club in downtown Seattle, he also helped initiate the purchase of property for a building project. The executive board for Third Church of Christ Scientist appointed Mr. Dutton to a lot selection committee. Dutton was a real estate agent and had served on the City of Seattle Planning Commission. He had been involved in finding property for other organizations, including a clubhouse for the Broadway Improvement Club and land for a Boy Scout camp called Camp Parsons. Also on the Lot Selection Committee were John J. Cavender, an engineering inspector who had previously been a real estate agent, and Clifford H. Anderson, a fire insurance agent. The committee worked quickly, and on January 22, 1918, they presented seven options to the membership. Through a democratic process, led by Dutton acting as church president, after discussion on the advantages and disadvantages of all seven options, the members made their selection. The majority chose a lot just north of the University of Washington campus. It was on the southeast corner of Northeast 50th Street and 17th Avenue Northeast, which at that time was called University Boulevard. 
a wide, flat street with a landscaping strip down the center. It led directly to the main campus entrance. The street would later be dubbed Greek Row because of the fraternity and sorority houses that were already starting to be built along it. The property selection was ratified at a special business meeting in March. The decision was almost unanimous. The lot was purchased for $4,800. Nothing more happened with the property during the war, but now, more than a year later, while the troops were starting to return home, it was time to consider the next steps. On Wednesday, April 15, 1919, a special meeting of the membership was held in the University Bank building after the regular Wednesday evening testimony meeting. Board Chair and President O.J.C. Dutton called the meeting to order. It began in the normal way, with silent prayer, followed by the slow and thoughtful audible repetition of the Lord's Prayer. Then, launching into the business at hand, President Dutton announced that the meeting had been called for the purpose of taking action on building a church edifice. After some discussion of various ideas and approaches, individual members began to propose actions to be voted on by the membership. First, a proposal was made to appoint five members to a building committee to oversee construction of the church, but that motion was withdrawn. Putting first things first, a bigger question was put to the members. Were they ready to start a building project? It would be a huge financial commitment for this new church, which already had so many regular expenses, their room rentals, salaries for readers, musicians, and reading room librarian, plus the joint activities all the Seattle churches supported together. Building a church would not be easy. After more discussion, it was decided to vote by secret ballot. This ensured that everyone was truly and thoughtfully voting their individual conscience. A prudent approach, considering the importance of this decision, the level of commitment it would require, and the tremendous long-term effort it would set in motion. When the ballots were collected up and counted, President Dutton announced the results of the vote. Overwhelmingly, the members voted yes, they would build a church. The next item for discussion was how to proceed. A motion was made and seconded that a building committee of five members be elected by the membership. The mover referred to the church building section of the church manual, the rules for Christian science churches established by Reverend Mary Baker Eddy, which states, there shall be a building committee consisting of not less than three members, and this committee shall not be dissolved until the new church edifice is completed. Whoever was elected to the building committee would have a huge responsibility throughout an unknown duration. It was a serious commitment. But this motion was withdrawn. Instead, the membership decided to hold elections two weeks later. The date for the meeting was announced. This special meeting was adjourned. With all the discussion and parliamentary process that had taken place, it must have been already quite late at night, probably well after 10 o'clock. 
No doubt many members were ready to go home, but there was urgent business on a different topic. Consequently, another special meeting was immediately convened to hear an important letter from the Christian Science Board of Directors at the Mother Church in Boston. There were conflicting views among Boston officials over the relationship between the Christian Science Board of Directors of the Mother Church and the trustees of the Christian Science Publishing Society. It would soon make headlines in the Seattle Times. Christian Science Leaders in Fight Litigation Started in Boston Court to Determine Control of Publishing Company and two days later, another internal conflict would make local headlines. A branch church in another region filed litigation against officials of both the Boston Church and the publishing company. This case involved questions over the relationship between the mother church and the branch churches, and who held the highest authority now that Reverend Eddie was gone. Third church members instructed their clerk to reply to the directors of the Mother Church with a letter expressing loyalty to the church manual and faith and confidence in the board of directors. Beyond that, the members were not sure how to respond. The meeting was adjourned. For now, the members were focused on building a church. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.